Bonjour, FMH podcast listeners. This is Sarah Burlingame, FMH blogger and friend of the podcast, asking for your support. We know Lindsay has done our community a profound service, bringing the voices of women in polygamy, intersectional feminism, and of course, the best and most hilarious commentary on schlocky, low-brow Mormon culture on the Bloggernacle. Please show your support by clicking on the donation link, or better yet, subscribe as a monthly member. If we believe that the work that women do to lift all of our voices is valuable, we need to support that work financially. If knowing that you had an FMH podcast waiting for you was the only thing that got you through the last Thanksgiving dinner without going full on Sonia Johnson, please give and give generously. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And one of the things that... We haven't talked a lot about, but I've tried to bring it in whenever possible, is the story of people of color in the church. Now, of course, the church is a global church. The majority of Latter-day Saints are not white Utahns. However, the majority of our history has been focused on white Mormon Utahns. And while that history is fascinating, we've covered a lot of it, whenever possible, I want to remind listeners that there is an entire movement um, happening in different parts of the world that we are not aware of, multiple movements. And so I'm so excited to bring on a fantastic historian, Amanda Hendricks Komodo, who I just think is one of the best people ever. So Amanda, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, So I'm a graduate student at the University of Michigan. I'm uh, finishing a dissertation on Mormon missionary work among American Indians um, and Polynesians. And I'm particularly interested in how the Mormon practice of polygamy affects their perceptions of indigenous sexualities. Um, I'm actually defending the dissertation in about a week and just uh, turned in a full draft um, about two weeks ago. Yay! <laughs> well, it's really great timing for me. We've been trying to nail down an interview because yeah. you're always researching this interesting stuff. But this is particularly fascinating, especially when I was running into the Joseph F. Smith, you know, sort of rumors and speculations that Mm -hmm. um, on his mission that perhaps missionaries were having relationships with women, Polynesian women. And, you know, since I have talked about that, I have learned of multiple instances where Mormon apostles or Mormon men on their missions, whether it be in England or otherwise, have had sort of these controversial relationships. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we're also going to talk about the history of um, Polynesian saints. And it's, it's a complicated history because it's one of extreme faith and perseverance, but it's also a story of racism and um, segregation and colonialism, right? Do you think that's fair to sum it up that way? Definitely. I, I mean, often in the Pacific Islands, Mormons will frame themselves 
as being against white colonialism or will see themselves as being the victims of American expansionism. But I think that they're, they're definitely partaking in um, American colonialism in the Pacific in a lot of ways. So do you want to walk us through, I mean, from the early onset, the, the church was sending missionaries out from like the middle 1800s until, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we still have, have a lot of, a large presence in, in the Pacific Island, right? Yeah. Do you want to kind of walk us through a general history of our relationship with Pacific Islanders? Sure. So one of the first Mormon missionaries to go to the Pacific Islands is actually a man named Addison Pratt. Pratt was originally a whaler and had been a beachcomber, which is a white man who abandons a whaling ship to live among Polynesians, usually, in the 19th century. And so Pratt had been on board a whaling ship, um, was horrified by the violence that he encountered there, and then abandoned ship to live in the Hawaiian Islands for a couple of years before eventually returning to the United States. After he returned to the United States, he converted with his wife, um, Louisa, to Mormonism and ends up moving to Nauvoo where he encounters Joseph Smith and lives with the Mormon community for a while. It's unclear exactly how um, he gets sent to the Pacific Islands. We don't have any contemporary evidence. There's some suggestions, some sort of rumors, faithful rumors that circulate that he was working one day next to Joseph Smith and said, hey, um, you know, I, I really would love Go to back to the Pacific Islands. I think these people are descended from Israelites, but there's no actual documentation that that rumor is true. And so he gets sent by Joseph Smith to the Pacific Islands in the 1840s. And he originally planned to go to the Sandwich Islands and ends up traveling to what is now French Polynesia, but at the time was a contested space between the French and the British into Tahiti, the Tuamotus, and the Austral Islands in the 1840s and ends up starting his missionary work there. No, that's fantastic. And initially when Mormons arrive there, they're not very successful. There's a war going on between the French and the British and the Mormons get absolutely no one to listen to them because the Tahitians are more concerned about the fact that the French are trying to take over their country than the presence of a couple Mormon missionaries. Um, but eventually he decides to go to the outer islands and within a couple of months, they've converted most of the Austral Islands. The main Austral Island is Tubuai and most of the Tuamotus, much to the consternation of the French and the British missionaries who are already there. So you're, you're talking about something that is important. And it's, it's funny because the Mormons show up as sort of these interlopers in this scenario and all these politics. But eventually, especially in Hawaii, we have Mormon Mormons that like work their way up in the government hierarchy mm-hmm. and take take leadership, and it becomes prominent. In fact, I was reading an article today, and I'm, I haven't verified these numbers that said like Utah has the highest concentration of Pacific Islanders in the United States, um, which I which surprised me. So I, again, I haven't checked on those numbers, but it's clear that even though it was just a handful of missionaries, yeah. that there becomes a large influence. Yeah, and I've, I've heard those numbers too. I think it's the largest per capita population. And then um, if you look at sheer numbers, I think California is the only state that has a, an actual higher, um, as far as just pure numbers population than Utah. But I think Utah is definitely the highest per capita population of Pacific Islanders in the United States. It's so fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, my, my best friend growing up is Polynesian. She's Samoan. Mm-hmm. But uh I, this is also an important story to me because my great grandfather, he was a German missionary who was one of, um, the missionaries to go to 
you know, Tonga and we have all these apocryphal stories in our family about how successful he is and how beloved he is. And we have a lot of the things he brought back. So it's been this sort of lore in our family as well. So, um, tell us, tell us how it evolves from these missionaries showing up in this conflict to having the most per capita, I guess, (laughs) in Utah. How do we get there? Yeah. So, um, the Mormons are actually only in Tahiti and what, and the Tuamotus for a very short time. They end up coming back to the, U, to the United States because they've had such a success, successful mission that they uh, need more missionaries. But the Mormon presence ends up being a bit of a problem in Tahiti because Mormonism gets co-opted into this nationalist movement. And in the Tuamotus, there are some Paumotuan Mormons who end up sort of hiding out in the mountains and then burning a French convert and raising a American flag, which understandably makes the French government a little bit uncomfortable. And so they actually end up expelling the Mormon missionaries from French Polynesia. And Mormons don't actually get to return to that area until much later in the 19th century, until the late 1880s and 1890s. At the same time that Mormon missionaries are in Tahiti, um, the church ends up sending some people who had been working in the gold fields in California um, during the gold rush to the Hawaiian islands. I mean, sort of the Hawaiian islands that end up being the center of Pacific Mormonism. Initially, when the Mormon men go to the Hawaiian islands, they didn't actually intend to proselytize to native Hawaiians. They saw themselves as being primarily sent to the white men who were there. But when they go, they discover that the white sailors, the white missionaries who are already there aren't really interested in the Mormon message. And after some debate, and I think it's important to remember that not all of the first missionaries who go to the Hawaiian Islands actually think that turning and proselytizing to the native Hawaiians is the right thing to do. But after some debate, after George Q. Cannon convinces the rest of the missionaries that this is the right thing to do, they decide that since the white community isn't interested, that they're going to learn Hawaiian and they're going to proselytize to native Hawaiians. And that's the moment when really they see sort of the rise of Pacific Mormonism because they're able to convince several local people who are influential, um, who know the language to convert to Mormonism. And then those influential Hawaiian men then help them to establish a community and to proselytize to the rest of the islands. And that's great because we've been talking on this podcast before about sort of this history. I mean, we, we did an episode on this way back in the beginning about interracial marriage and Joseph Smith and William McCary and this idea that Joseph sort of had, I would say, maybe a pastime obsession with idea of converting the Lamanites, right? Native Americans. He was very, obs- mm-hmm. he was very fascinated with, with, uh, local indigenous tribes around him and the lore that surrounded that and that, you know, has influenced him. And so, there was always this idea of converting the Lamanites. It was a very Book of Mormon doctrine. And so what I found fascinating about this history and a little bit confusing was the idea that, uh, you know, Pacific Island peoples had more leeway theologically than, say, uh, Mormons of African descent, right? It was separate. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that? Divide a little bit to us? Yeah. So Mormons um, eventually end up connecting. Polynesians to the stories contained within the Book of Mormon through the figure of Hagoth. Um, Hagoth is a figure in Alma 63.5. Um, 
he is a Nephite man, actually, who um, is going exploring um, and builds a ship and then takes sort of men and women from the community along with some livestock, um, some chickens, and they get on the ship and go exploring along the coast. And it doesn't actually say exactly where this coast is. And during their trips, as they're sort of exploring the coast, they get lost at sea and no one really knows what happens to them afterwards. And the story of this Nephite man getting lost at sea is where Mormons eventually end up connecting Polynesians to the stories of the Book of Mormon. And so early Mormons, at least, and a lot of modern Mormons see American Indians and Polynesians as sharing a similar heritage. Um, and so Polynesians are not seen as being under the same curse as African Americans and are allowed to participate in temporal rituals. And one of the things that happens um, is that because Polynesians are seen as being Israelites, um, they're encouraged to come to the United States before there's a temple in the Hawaiian Islands and to participate in some of the temporal rituals that are going on there. One thing that I should note is that the sort of idea that Polynesians are connected to the Book of Mormon does not extend to all Pacific Islanders. There are actually three groups of Pacific Islanders, Polynesians, Micronesians, and Melanesians. And Melanesians are considered to be closer to Africans than to American Indians. And so there's a lot of debate that happens about whether or not Melanesians, as opposed to Polynesians, can be included in temporal rituals. And sometimes Melanesians are excluded from temporal rituals. And what is the background on that? Is it because of a, like a skin color or is there some sort of Book of Mormon lore that would separate the two? It's, it's because of um, skin color. So if you think of the word Melanesian, it has a root mela in it. Mela meaning dark or black, um, same sort of root as melanin, the stuff in your skin that determines your skin pigmentation. And so Melanesians, as the word suggests, can be darker, might have more curly hair, stuff that would be considered to be more African, and I put that word in quotations, by white Europeans. Um, and so there's some debate, not only among Mormons, but within the anthropological community as well, about how, where Melanesians come from, why they seem to be darker than Polynesians. And Mormons aren't the only ones to suggest that maybe Melanesians might be somehow related to the African community. Oh, and so there's some debate that occurs about whether or not they should be considered as being under the curse as well. If you look at a map of the Pacific Islands, um, and maybe this is something that uh, we could put a link up to, and I can find a link for you. The groups of the Pacific Islands are grouped into different areas. Um, and so Polynesia would be like Samoa, Tonga, Tahiti. Melanesia would include Fiji. Um, and then Micronesia would be is often it, there's like a federated states of Micronesia and it's considered a subregion of the Pacific islands or Oceania. Um, and so they're actually different groups of islands. You know, it just reminds me there, Chris and Decker from who has left the apostolic United brethren. There was a tradition happening with their patriarch in their church where he would bestow a patriarchal blessing. And if he somehow discerned a drop of African blood in you, even if you were white, uh, you could be kicked out of the church. So I didn't know if this was like a, you know, this folklore mixed with extreme racism or if it was based on distinct groups. So that's helpful. Yeah. And I mean, it, it becomes really complicated in the Pacific because there's a lot of intermarriage, not necessarily in the Pacific islands themselves, but once you get into like Hawaii 
Um, in the United States, mainland United States, definitely, you have people from all over the Pacific Islands immigrating to the United States. And so then there begins to be intermarriage between these groups. And it's not entirely clear all the time. You know, if you have one family, they may have somebody from a different island nation that's part of their family. And so just like with any sort of group, the lines become blurred. Um, although in the Pacific Islands themselves, that's not as big of a problem. Well, you mentioned that they start immigrating from Hawaii in around 1870, because that's when I understand the Hawaiian government allowed immigration to the mm -hmm. states. And that's that's something that I find interesting because I live in Tooele County and just west of us is Skull Valley. And if you're, yeah. if you're driving out in this desert, and I'm talking this is a barren desert, there's this little historical marker that you almost blink. You see this like little trailer home and this chain link fence. There's a historical marker. And if you go out there, there's a town called Yosepa. And I've known about Yosepa because I've lived out here for a long time and I love ghost towns and I know the history. But why don't you tell us the story of Yosepa? It's fascinating and heartbreaking and incredibly interesting. Yeah. So um, Yosepa actually isn't the first sort of group of Native Hawaiians to immigrate um, to the U.S. And so we'll come to Yosepa sort of at the end. So Native Hawaiians and other Polynesians have been immigrating to the United States for a long time. The first group of Native, or sorry, Polynesians to immigrate to the U.S. as Mormons actually comes in the 1850s. Benjamin F. Garrard, Addison Pratt, and some of the other men who had served as missionaries in French Polynesia um, bring some of the Polynesian women who white Mormons had married back to the United States with them, and they actually form a small colony in San Bernardino. They live with the other white Mormons who are there, but there is some racism that the um, Polynesian women encounter. And so some of them end up going off and forming a smaller sub-community there. So that's actually probably the first instance of Mormon Polynesian immigration. Okay, um, so wait, I have a question about that because I yeah. have not heard about that. So this starts in 1850s, which is fascinating. But you said uh, Polynesian women. Did they only bring Polynesian women or were there Polynesian men as well? I think it's actually only Polynesian women, although I'd have to check. I've never read of Polynesian men coming. So what it is is you have um, white Mormon men, some of whom were people who had been living in Tahiti, and some of whom, at least one of whom, was a white Mormon missionary who had traveled to Tahiti, to Tahiti from the United States and then had then come back. Um, and some of them had married Tahitian women while they were living there. Um, and so they bring their wives back with them. And then Thomas Whitaker is one of them. He was a Mormon man who had, he, who was actually from Tahiti and had then come to the United States. Benjamin F. Garrard had been born in the United States, went to Tahiti and then come back. And so they actually bring their, their Polynesian wives with them. One of the women brings also her children with her. And there is, I mean, the children aren't all female. So there are some male Polynesians that come that way. But yeah, so they actually bring their wives with them and they live in San Bernardino. This is where it intersects with this series, right? Because yeah. what's fascinating about this is this is rare, but we've talked about this like with Jacob Hamblin, who has, I believe, a Southern Paiute wife and mm -hmm. uh, as a plural wife. Some of these men are sort of experimenting with the idea of plural wives, right? With these yeah. Pacific Island women. And it's actually, so they actually, when they come back to the United States, that's the first time that they've encountered white Mormon polygamy. When they were living in French Polynesia, 
polygamy hadn't been announced to the church as a whole yet. And so Addison Pratt and Benjamin F. Gerard actually think that it's initially just sort of rumors that are circulating. And so when they come back, they hear and they learn about polygamy. Addison Pratt, who does not have a Polynesian wife, is always skeptical of it. Benjamin F. Gerard, who has a Polynesian wife, is actually interested in the idea, at least initially, and asks his wife, Nahaina, if he can take a second wife. And she consents to him. Um, and what's interesting is, according to Lu Louisa Pratt's diary, um, she consents to him on one condition. As long as that second wife, white wife, respects her position as the first wife. I'm, it doesn't say, you know, explicitly, I'm guessing Gerard assures her that that's what's going to happen. And so he goes and marries another woman, a white second wife. And so um, for a short while, um, Gerard has a Polynesian first wife and a white second wife. However, it doesn't really go that well. It's never explicitly commented on, but it appears from what records that there are is that Nahaina feels as though her position is not being respected. And eventually she decides that she would rather get divorced and go back to Tahiti. Um, she's actually originally not from Tahiti. She's from a small island chain off of Tahiti. But she decides she's going to go back to Tahiti, what has become French Polynesia, and return to her people and no longer live in the United States. And sadly, um, Gerard tells her that she is welcome to go back, but she, she can only take one of her two children with her. Um, nice. She has two boys at the time, one of whom is still breastfeeding. The other is a preschooler at the time. She chooses the child that is still breastfeeding and is forced to leave one of her children behind. Um, and so that sort of is how the story of the first polygamous Polynesian relationship that I know of ends is with a woman being forced to choose between her two children. Oh, that's awful. Uh, and, you know, it kind of highlights this idea. So these are two different anecdotes I'm going to share. But one of them is that we know that anytime any Native American people are either married into as plural wives or adopted as children, um, I've, I've seen historians called it as, it, and this is controversial, indentured servitude, right? So they weren't really seen as the same status as white women were. And we see this later on in the early 20th century even in the LeBaron, colonial LeBaron, there are cases of men marrying Mexican women, but saying, oh, I can't wait to get a white wife because there was this definite social hierarchy. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that there was a lot of this baggage in this dynamic. So not only are they dealing with the struggles of plural marriage in general, yeah. but this hierarchy of race. Well, and that's one of the things that's interesting about Gerard's um, marriage is that it, in, it inverts the assumptions that people would have had about the hierarchy in having a non-white first wife would have given her some power theoretically over the white second wife. And then you have the racial issues butting up right against that. But I do want to say one of the things that makes Mormonism unique is actually its willingness to institutionalize those ma those marriages and to accept non-white women as as wives. There are actually a lot of instances in the Pacific Islands, in particular, in which white men would travel to the islands, would take a woman as a lover, but would never officially marry her. And then when um, he did marry a white woman, would sort of put away the Tahitian woman or Polynesian woman that he had been with and would no longer claim her as a spouse. And so although there is a lot of racism going on, I think it's important to realize that sort of standardizing these marriage or these relationships as marriages does give the women who are involved some sort of power that they wouldn't have otherwise had in some other white communities where they just would have been seen as 
consorts or concubines or, um, I mean, quite often sort of like the term prostitute is applied to them. And so there is definitely racism, but it's important to remember that Mormons are unique in being willing to institutionalize these relationships as marriages. And is that because of this Lamanite doctrine, this idea that there is Book of Mormon precedence for this? Was it explicitly believed like it was with, you know, indigenous American Indian tribes that they were to convert and marry and make their skin whiter? What Did you see that doctrine showing up at all? So they explicitly connect them beginning in the 1850s to to sometimes to Nephites, sometimes to Lamanites. It's not always exactly clear how the connection is being made. They don't, however, explicitly talk about polarum marriage as a way to whiten the skin of Polynesian women in the 1850s. I think one of the reasons, I mean, it may, it's hard to tell exactly why. There's not as much documentation surrounding the relationships that form in the Pacific Islands, partially because of the conditions of the Pacific Islands. It's very wet there. Paper doesn't tend to last very long. Um, if it's just sort of sitting around in a hot, humid environment, paper is also very expensive in the Pacific Islands at the time period. They actually have to ship it in from other places. And so it'd be very expensive. And so you don't have quite as many records for that reason. But I haven't actually seen that explicit rationale come up. However, that doesn't mean that it wasn't used and wasn't and was just not recorded. So I, maybe a better question to ask is, were Polynesian people seen on the same like you, you addressed this a little bit, but are, are they seen as exactly the same as American Indians or it, is there still a distinction? They are seen as being um, at the same level as American Indians. So, so when, like theologically, uh, you mean, right? Oh, sorry. Is what? Like theologically? Yeah, theologically. Um, although, so yeah, um, one of the things that happens um, if you look at the diaries of Addison Pratt or the letters that the London Missionary Society, which is a British missionary society in the Pacific Islands, talks about is they'll constantly talk about how Mormons are telling Tahitians that they are going to gather to the United States and that they are going to be part of the forming of Zion there. And so there's a fascinating letter that's in the collection of the London Missionary Society, and their collection is actually in London, um, that talks about the beliefs of native Tahitian Mormons. So what had happened was the London Missionary Society was concerned that Mormons were having a lot of success in some of the outer stations. And so they send out a representative from their society to go out and interview the people who had converted to Mormonism and sort of see what they believed and why they were converting. Um, and so they talk to one particular man, and the man says that the Mormons have told them that they are all going to be found in Zion. And so the member of the London Missionary Society says, that'll be great. Wouldn't it be great if you were all found in the heavenly Zion? And then the, according to the letter, the Tahitian man responds, no, you don't understand. Zion is going to be in America. And then the conversation sort of descends from there as the member of the London Missionary Society tells him, no, 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 you don't understand at all. Zion is not a physically physical place. And then the native Tahitian man says, no, you don't understand. We're all going in a boat to America. Um, and they just sort of keep reiterating that point back and forth to each other, debating whether or not Zion is heavenly or whether or not it's a physical place in the United States. And sort of that exchange suggests that Mormons in the Pacific Islands are teaching Polynesians that they're going to gather to the United States and that they're going to be part of that general gathering, even if we don't know specifically whether or not white Mormons believed that marrying Pacific Island women would physically lighten their skin. 
Which is not unlike missions to anywhere else. I mean, these, these missionaries yeah. were going to Europe and they were telling them to gather. And some of these same missionaries like Joseph F. Smith would go both to Europe and to mm-hmm. the, the Hawaiian Islands. I have one more clarifying question before you talk about the settlements when they start immigrating to the United States. But um, how did the Mormon church and specifically white polygamous men deal with Polynesian polygamy? So that's actually a relatively difficult question to answer. And one of the reasons is the nature of the records that we have. So there actually is some polygamy within Polynesian culture. Sometimes elites would take more than one wife um, or they would engage in relationships that wouldn't be contained within marriage. And Mormons don't comment on this explicitly when they go to the Pacific Islands. But one of the things that you find, particularly in the Hawaiian missionary records, is there's constant references to adultery. Um, And it's difficult to tell whether or not those cases of adultery are instances of people who have, you know, who were involved in monogamous, monogamous marriages and then went out and had sex without the consent of their wife or husband um, or whether those are instances of somebody having multiple wives, or in the case of Hawaiians, you can also have multiple husbands. And so one of the interesting things, actually, about early Mormonism in the Pacific Islands is we do know that there's a couple of cases where somebody was involved in the Mormon church who was a woman who had actually had multiple husbands before her conversion to the church. And so one of these instances is a woman named Makanoi Keepa, and she is a rather elite Hawaiian woman who had been, who had a husband, um, but then also had a semi-formalized relationship um, that she considered a marriage, and many Hawaiians would have considered a marriage, to a um, physician to the royal family. And so with the consent of both men, she's involved in um, sexual relationships with both of them, She was considered the wife of both of them. And so she actually has two husbands when she joins the Mormon church. However, one of those husbands had passed away, even though she still would have considered them a a spouse. And so it's interesting that she's allowed to join the Mormon church. No one ever comments on the fact that she had two spouses. And she appears to have been a full participant in the Mormon community. Yeah, and I think that this speaks to something that is complicated. When when we're looking back, especially me telling stories, I want there to be like a clear, easy story to tell yeah. about these policies. But it's clear that these are still very much experimental people. I mean, even still, we've dealt with this and, and the Community of Christ formerly our LDS had to deal with similar things when they were when they were proselytizing in the global south of how to deal with these unique situations, especially because they were such an anti-polygamous church. So yeah, that's fascinating. And thank you for um, bringing these women and their names, because that's the other thing. In a lot of this history that we have in the frontier West, we never hear the names of indigenous women, right? Yeah. They call them Sally. I, I see that a lot. Or these women are just, you know, native wife or something. So I think what you're doing is so important. So will you bring us into the colonization, or or I guess the immigration to the states? Yeah. So as we were talking about earlier, Native Hawaiians believed in the importance of temple work like other Mormons and wanted to participate in it. it. Um, And one of the things that it appears was always emphasized within Native Hawaiian Mormonism was the importance of uh, genealogy. And I think one of the reasons for that is that genealogy also plays an important role 
within Native Hawaiian culture. And so if you um, sort of look at the way that Native Hawaiian elites and even people who aren't elite think about their their history and their ancestry, they believe in the importance of genealogy and often are able to recite long genealogical lists. And so when Mormons begin to convert Native Hawaiians, the importance of genealogy within Native Hawaiian culture already already has a nice parallel within Mormonism um, and its emphasis on genealogy. And so a lot of Native Hawaiian converts, a lot of Samoan converts, a lot of um, Maori converts are interested in the temple and in forging those relationships through sealing and to making sure that their families are bound together in the eternities um, and doing whatever they need to do to make that happen. And so from the 1870s onward, Native Hawaiians begin to immigrate to the United States to participate in temple work. And so one of the earliest people to immigrate is a man named J.W. Ka'ule Inamoku, who immigrates from Salt Lake City to Hawaii in 1875. And he works for 12 years as a stone cutter and then is called to serve in a mission um, in New Zealand in 1887. Um, he's not the only Native Hawaiian to immigrate. Um, William King and Alma Smith, who are two early Mormon missionaries to Hawaii, um, arranged for several Native Hawaiians who wanted to immigrate to Utah to do temple work to return with them to the United States when they finished their missions. A lot of the people, a lot of the Native Hawaiians who immigrate to the United States to do missionary work, or sorry, to do temple work in the late 19th century immigrate to Salt Lake City because that's where they can be close to a temple, can be close to an endowment house to do the sort of work that they need to do in the temple. Um, but one of the, but it's also important to emphasize that their place within the early Mormon community is not an easy one, or sorry, within the Mormon community is not an easy one. In the 19th century, there's a lot of racism against Pacific Islanders and the connection that Mormons make between Pacific Islanders and Lamanites and Nephites does not protect Native Hawaiians from that racism. There's a lot of fears within Salt Lake City in the 1870s and in the 1880s that Native Hawaiians are dirty, that they are diseased, and that they're going to spread leprosy throughout Utah and throughout Salt Lake City um, simply by being present. And so when there becomes a desire for an increased number of Native Hawaiians to come over to participate in temple work, the leadership of the church and especially those men who had been involved in the missions in Hawaii don't necessarily want that community to be located in Salt Lake City because of the racism that's there. And so they begin to look for a site where the Native Hawaiian community can be close enough to the temple to do temple work, but will also be far away enough from Salt Lake City that they won't have to deal with the white racism and the fears um, of leprosy that are sort of circulating in the area. And so the site that they end up choosing um, is Yosepa. And so they found Yosepa in 1889 specifically as a place for Native Hawaiians to gather where they can do temple work and where they can build a community and begin a Native Hawaiian colony. Yeah, so 1889 sounds like a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago, right? It's less than 200 years ago. And yeah, go ahead. I mean, my great grandpa was born 10 years later, so it's would be within a lot of families sort of living memory. Yeah, so they so they come out here and of course they leave these lush beautiful islands and they come to the West Desert and Tula County is bad enough but School Valley is like is is like a step below Tula County which is saying <laughs> a lot. It is barren, right? And so they struggle. Yeah. This is a challenge for them. 
And, but they, initially it was like 80 people. Is that right? That came out here and then they make it flourish for about two generations. They flourish until they are um, called back to build a a temple in um, Laie. And so they actually don't leave the site because the site is considered a failure. They leave the site because they're told that their labor is needed back in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, And a lot of families are reluctant to leave. And there was also a controversy because three people from that community get leprosy and they sort of, you know, confine them to a shack where they would raise a flag if they needed supplies. Paul Reeve talks about that, where if they needed supplies, they would raise this flag, someone would drop it off. And um, that's how they took care of these these three. But the news of that spreads to Salt Lake City where everyone says, see, this is why they had to be out there. And this is a complicated story because a lot of families have so much you know, historical family tradition of pride for how these, for the faith of these saints that came and they really did the stories of how they built this community are pretty heroic from how they've turned this desert into, I guess the, the story was they had their streets lined with yellow roses and, um, they would use flour and, uh, cornstarch in place of to make poi. Right. And so there's that, but they were also, sort of, it was actual segregation, right? Yeah. And I think, I think the point that you're making about sort of the fears about leprosy continuing, even after the, the creation of this, this entirely separate community is an important one. I don't, even though sort of the community is flourishing and the Deseret News reports on it frequently as a success, I think you're right to point out that there's still a lot of fears about the presence of these native Hawaiians and rumors are constantly circulating about leprosy and the effects that it's going to have. And then I really also appreciated the point that you make sort of about the connections that these people had made to the local community. One of the things that I sort of often think about is the cemetery that is in Yosepa and the, just the numbers of children and elderly people who died during the first couple of years, or first couple of winters really um, in Utah um, as people catch whooping cough, as they sort of catch uh fevers and colds, and the elderly and the very young begin to die. I mean, these are people who have lost family members in this valley and saw themselves as doing it for religious reasons and as founding this community so that they could be closer to the temple. They really do see it, I think, as their community and as their home and see their suffering and the sacrifices that they have made as being just as big as those as, you know, the white Mormons who have founded Salt Lake City. They have their own pioneer day um, and celebrate their own pioneer day every year in the 19th century. And so I think you're right to say, you know, there's still racism going on while Yosefa is um, running and being successful and that these people really see it as their community, their home and something that they have sacrificed to build. And that's where I feel like an intruder into this history, because from my modern sort of white perspective, I can look back and say with some white guilt, like, you know, the story of them thinking of them coming over from a completely different culture and lifestyle and then, you know, wearing pioneer garb and planting like American white farmers planted and using the same crops and using the same equipment and and praying in the same way. To me, like that's the story of colonization, right? And we did the same thing with the Indian placement program. It's it's in essence sort of an, er- an erasure of a culture but it feels like an intruder to say that because like like you said there is such deep meaning derived to the point where i think every memorial day there's like 
thousands of people that gather out there and uh, celebrate this devotion and celebrate this faith. So it really, I feel really uncomfortable just from my position saying like, yeah, it's terrible. Look how we colonize these people. It's really complicated. Yeah, well, and I think what you point out is important because I think it's important to both recognize it as an act of colonization. Native Hawaiians have been dispossessed from their own land in Hawaii. And, you know, Hawaii is annexed to the United States not long or during this time period, really. And the Native Hawaiian monarchy is overthrown. Many of the people who immigrate to Yosepa maintain ties to Hawaii and consider themselves to be supporters of the Hawaiian monarchy and are opposed to annexation. And I think it's important to realize that the white Mormon presence in Hawaii is not an uncomplicated one and that many Native Hawaiians see the white presence in Hawaii as a problem because many Native Hawaiians believe that they should still be their own separate monarchy because, and I think this fact is indisputable, the U.S. annexation of Hawaii was an illegal overthrow of a legitimate government. And to think of Hawaii as an American space and to to take Native Hawaiian culture and replace it with a white culture, whether that be a white Mormon culture or a white Protestant culture, is an act of culture erasure. But on the same hand, uh, or on the other hand, if you read the accounts of Native Hawaiian Mormons, it's obvious that they don't see their own experience in that way. Um, there was a series of oral histories that were done in the 1970s um, in which a local elementary school teacher, or it may have been actually a secondary teacher, but a local teacher in Leia went out and did interviews of Native Hawaiian and Samoan and just Polynesian um, Mormons living in the Hawaiian Islands and asked them to describe their memories of the community. Um, and to a person, when they remember the Mormon presence in Hawaii, what they primarily remember is the power and the spiritual power that Native Hawaiian saints have. And it becomes clear sort of reading their oral histories that they see this as a Native Hawaiian or as a Samoan, or as a Tongan faith, and not as a white faith that has been imported into their culture. And so for them, although some would recognize white Mormonism as a form of, you know, cultural colonialism, for them, there isn't a conflict between being Mormon and being Hawaiian. Their Mormonness is a part of their Hawaiianness. And I think, as you point out, it's important to recognize that as well. Ha, Amanda, you've historian warrior goddess like you're blowing my mind with all this stuff i'm so excited for your dissertation and it just reminds me of like the portrayals you know that are complicated of pacific islanders we have johnny lingo and yeah. the other side of heaven and i'm trying to think i'm sure that there are more but those are the two that i recall off my head and it's really interesting because in both of those we sort of see we see some stereotypes, like, first of all, the happy Polynesian, right? And then the, the, the dirty, like, savage native, right? And, you know, I think it's in, uh, Johnny Lingo, where is that Muhana is really dirty, you know, and her yeah, hair is all frazzled. Oh, yeah, and ugly because she's Hollywood dirty. Like, she just needs, like, to get her hair brushed and then she gets to yes. be beautiful. Oh, it's, and, you know, women as property. There's all these, in, and, like, we could do an entire episode on that. And then in The Other Side of Heaven, I believe there's a scene where, like, you know, these women are so sexual and their sexual mores are so much different and they're, like, disrobing. Yeah. And that's a complicated story because we know that missionaries were having sexual relations 
in some instances with these women. So it's so, it's so complicated for me. And I have three co-bloggers, you know, Malia is Samoan and Kalani is Tongan and Gina is Maori. And so it's so interesting to see their complicated history and how they can own this, but still they find a lot of this problematic. So I just feel like the way that you've presented the history really does justice to both narratives. So yeah, I although I, I will say, like, I feel much of the same tension being a white woman writing about Polynesians. And I, I think the way that I justify it in my own mind is that um, although I'm not Mormon myself, I, I'm also, you know, descended from six generations of Mormons and, and Mormon polygamists. And so I, I justify it in saying, you know, I can't tell the story of, of white Mormons without including this other story and arguing that this other story is just as important as, as the white Mormon story. But I, I also sort of feel that same sort of tension within my own telling of the, of the history. I don't know. I don't have any answers, but I do think that these stories are so important. And that's why I think it's important that you're telling it and, and naming these women and naming these stories. Like, like the example of what was the woman who was the first wife? Uh, Nahaina. Nahaina. Like that is a fascinating story. That needs to be its own book. And so I, I would recommend and encourage any listeners out there, if you have stories of um, Polynesian polygamy in your family, please share those. Send those in. That's fascinating. Amanda, what reading would you recommend for people if they want to engage further on this issue? Um, there's a couple of really great books out there. One is um, Matthew Kester's um, Remembering Yosepa. Um, Matthew Kester is a professor at uh, BYU Hawaii, and he did his dissertation on Yosepa, um, and it is just a fantastic book. Another one is Pokulania Cow's Chosen People of Promised Land, Mormonism and Race um, in Hawaii. And she talks about the foundation of Leia. She talks a bit about Yosepa, but she is a native Hawaiian woman writing about her experiences within Mormonism. She actually ended up leaving Mormonism because of the way that Native Hawaiians and Polynesians in general were treated within Mormonism. And she talks about that within the book in the introduction. Um, and then she uncovers some of the history of Mormons um, in Hawaii. And then another book that I would recommend is Isaiah Walker's um, Waves of Resistance, which is a book that isn't specifically about Mormonism, but talks about Native Hawaiians um, and actually surfing and the way that surfing becomes a form of resistance in the Hawaiian islands and some of the problems that surround interracial marriage and dating in the Hawaiian islands. And Isaiah Walker is actually also a professor at BYU Hawaii. And then I feel like the final book that I have to mention um, is Lainey Bridges. He has a couple of books on Mormon missionary work in Hawaii and then in the Pacific Islands in general. Um, and his work tends to be a straightforward narrative concerning Mormon missionary work, but no one is better um, than Lainey Bridge on the details of Mormon missionary work and making sure that every detail is correct. Um, and so his work is also really good. And so a cow's book, Kester's book, and Walker's book are really good at presenting sort of the politics of Hawaiian history and making sure that it's a story that includes the voices of Native Hawaiians and other Polynesians. Um, and then Lenny Bridge is really good for laying out the details of specifically Mormon missionary work um, in the Pacific Islands. Fantastic. So we'll link to those. And then when your is your dissertation going to be published so we could link to that eventually? 
Um, eventually, but probably not for a couple of years. Um, typically they take, they take a three or four years to come out. So it will be for a while. Oh, I'm so excited for it. And I know so many other people that are excited too. So again, it's really important work and I just appreciate you coming on and sharing these important histories. So thanks so much. Well, thank you. And everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.